assuming positive intent. I would take that a step further and supercharge that. Live with intentional naivete. Even when you get wronged, assume the next time people are gonna be wonderful. It's better than living with your guard up all the time. Net net is that when you give people opportunities and you let them try things and, and you don't worry about if things have failed in the past, it comes out positively far more often than you might expect. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode coming your way today. Mike Evans, co-founder of Grubhub. And yes, I'm talking about that Grubhub, the leading online and mobile food ordering and delivery marketplace. Right now, they're up to like 32 million active diners. Today, he is CEO of Fixer, building the right now handyman service. They respond to customer requests in less than an hour with skilled, friendly workers. And he's also author of Hangry, which I can personally relate to. A startup journey and his memoir about starting a Grubhub and running it through all the way to IPO. Oh, Mike, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Man, I had fun going down the rabbit hole today, including finding out things in our research like you're allergic to bees. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, in the book, Hangry, I, I sort of tell two stories. One is is the sort of creation of Grubhub. And then the second is after I leave, after the IPO, I ride my bike across the United mm -hmm. States. And there was a point in uh, Kentucky when I was cycling and I got stung by a bee like right under my eye and my like whole face swelled up. It was uncomfortable to say the least. Oh, the things we learn about ourselves when we're taking a journey across America on a bike. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's true. I, I recommend everyone to do it. Not that many people do, but more than you might think. All right. So I want to, I want to dive into your book here in a second, but I got to say, one of these like cool things I found out is if I'm ever going to bike across America, I will 100% choose a recumbent bike based on your blog advice. Well, thanks. I, I mean, the idea yeah. behind it was uh recumbent bike. It's, it's not that different from a normal bike, but you're sort of a little bit more upright. And so you just see the country. You're just looking at the horizon instead of looking at the ground. That was it. That was the whole reason I picked it. I just wanted to, I wanted to actually see the country I was riding across. So uh, it was a good move. Yeah. I thought it was great. And I could never thought about that, but it makes no sense. Now I've seen those, those people on their recumbent bikes going down the road and I'm like, why in the world are they doing that? And uh, you said it wasn't for comfort. It was because I don't want to stare at that line as yeah. I'm crossing across America. You know, that I'm, white line on the, the world. shoulder. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of how you run your career a little bit. You know, looking at taking a long-term perspective with your adventures. And we'll dive into some adventures. Riding your bike. You know, founding these companies based on really a sort of a heart and soul approach. I don't know. It just seemed very aligned with all that. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that um, it's very easy to get caught up in the short term and get caught on a, on a hamster wheel, no matter what business or what your activity, Looking you're at that line. Is, it's, it's easy line. to get caught up in it. 
And so this idea of like taking the long-term approach, making strategic decisions that are that have long-term dividends instead of short-term makes sense. Now, in the meantime, if you're running a business, you can't let the bank account balance drop below zero. The banks don't like that. So uh, so it, it, it is a mix. It's not an entirely long-term approach. Like it's a mix, but but I tend to bias a lot more towards the long-term thinking. It feels that way. And, and I'm glad to hear that. that that's how you perceive it too, because uh, it really comes through. Um, I want to read just really quickly the description of your book which I think will, will intrigue readers. So Mike Evans wanted a pizza, but getting a pizza was a pain in the neck. Insightful and hilarious, Hangry, his book, candidly follows Mike's personal journey from the excitement of creating something new to the satisfaction of changing the way America eats. And then ultimately, to the horror of seeing Grubhub turn from its roots to become a byword for exploitation in the restaurant industry. Increasingly suffering from anger and frustration, Mike rage quits the company he started, leaving it all behind to ride a bike across the United States in a long shot attempt to regain his sanity and find a new purpose. Did you find your your sanity or regain your sanity and your purpose? I got some of it. <laughs> not, not all of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the sort of the conclusion of the book is is not poor me. I wish it hadn't gone this way. And, you know, anyone can take out the world's tiniest fiddle because obviously I got a financial return from the IPO at Grubhub as well, even though I didn't really like the way the company was going at the time I left. But um, this spoiler is not much of a spoiler. The conclusion is not like, why me? But what now? Like, what am I going to do now to make the world a better place? What am I going to do with the resources that I have, which are significant after, after the IPO? And not just dollars. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about people I know and the investors I know and the things I've learned, like, what am I going to do with it? And the, and the answer ultimately becomes, I launch a new company that's focused on, on creating an entry path into the trades. So we train people from scratch, their full-time employees to go do maintenance in people's homes. And, uh, and it creates an entry path environment in a society where the average age of a, of tradespeople is in mid fifties in most of the trades. And so um, it's desperately needed. Uh, we're sort of headed towards a really dangerous situation from a nation nationwide perspective in terms of entry point into the trades. And so that was the sanity I got back was like, well, do something about it. Don't just bitch about I it. Do that. something. Yeah. A call to action. Yeah. Uh, on that. What was it like, just from a listener's perspective, having your your baby, like your uh, not your baby, but your baby uh, <laughs> grub up? grow up in a way that wasn't really aligned with your leadership vision. I mean, you, you took it to a certain point. I mean, but you, you know, it changed, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. At the time of the IPO, I think we had 65,000 independent restaurants on the platform and we had up until six months before the IPO, we had zero chains. It was entirely independent restaurants. And so for the 12 years I was there, you know, through the housing crisis, the 06, 07 housing crisis, like we helped keep, a lot of restaurants in business and really help them thrive. Yeah. And that was so satisfying. And mm-hmm. to some degree, the company still does that, but there is so much pressure for public companies to make a financial return at the cost of everything else, including their own future and including their customers' welfare. Um, there's sort of, it's not just financial return at any cost, but it's mm-hmm. short-term financial return at any cost. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't know how public companies resist that temptation and 
stay a, a long-term going concern for a decade or two decades or five decades, unless you can really, really have a strong, a strong drive towards this idea of, of the thing that we do is we create customer value. And we just so happen to make money on the side when we do it. Mm-hmm. And when you lose sight of that, which cool. is very hard not to, I, you know, I think that ultimately companies end up not differentiating, they become more exploitative, and it just gets really hard to actually mm-hmm. be competitive even. So going back to the to the frustrating pizza piece, what was the initial vision that that you had for the organization in terms of how it would be? Yeah, I I didn't like have a grand plan for world domination when I started. I literally just wanted a pizza. Like I was hungry. And like it was such a pain in the neck to go to the yellow pages and then you're not going to believe this. Call on the phone. No. And even nowadays I still see people say like, "Well, what's the big deal just calling on the phone?" And like the first time like you have to look at that phone number, you get put on hold, somebody takes your credit card number over the phone. They get the order wrong because it's very hard to transcribe that correctly. Like there's just a lot of things that go wrong with that system. And so um, at first it was just discovery. It was a search mm-hmm. engine for food food because Google hadn't like gotten there yet. Right. Uh, it was just trying to find the restaurants that delivered to me. And then it quickly morphed into online ordering because that was just an easier way to run a business. And so that that was the initial idea. I mean, I definitely wanted to start a business, but mm-hmm. um, the problem I was trying to solve was very personal. I love pizza. I love it. I still love it to this day. I eat so much pizza. I have to run marathons oh just because I eat so much pizza. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, that is, it was a personal problem, which, which can be good, which can be a great way to start a business is to pick something that really just annoys you personally. Um, I think that we'll see more and more startups doing things in the healthcare space just because the consumer, like the patient experience is so frustrating yeah. uh-huh. that I think um, people just want to solve that problem. It's such a behemoth to attack the, mm-hmm. to tackle though. Um, it can be really hard, but um, I think that that's care. where businesses start typically. How many pizzas do you eat a week? Just to clarify. And now I'm down to just like one. Okay. <laughs> At your peak, where were you? Uh, I mean, five. <laughs> like I was eating really? a lot. Yeah, especially when I was selling the restaurants. You know, I walk into the restaurants and I'm pitching an idea and they're like, well, do you want to try my pizza? And uh, 100% of restaurant tours across the country think their food is the best. And when you're selling them, it's your job to agree with them. So you eat the pizza. <laughs> yes, I have had it. It was fantastic. Yeah. Of course, it's hard to say there's a bad pizza. Have you ever had a bad pizza? Yes. Yes. Anything that's like a frozen pizza where the, oh. where like the dough, like the dough has to be made in house for it to be a real pizza. Okay. If All you, right. if you buy the crust from Cisco, that's not a real pizza. That's a strong endorsement for in-house made pizza dough right there. The I founder mean, of the founder of Grubhub perspective on pizza dough. I mean, when you're a pizza place, you have three ingredients. You have pizza sauce, dough, and mozzarella cheese. I mean, there's more ingredients. But get like, it right. Yes. But get it. Like, do, do it right. Do it. And you can tell the rest the restaurants, you know, it's. I talk about this early on in the book. I talk about how hard it is to get new customers and how much better it is to have a good product where people just repeat. And, all you know, the restaurant industry is brutal. It's something like 28% of restaurants close every year. And that without a pandemic, just on a normal year. 
And so the ones that survive are the ones that keep customers coming back because their product is really good. And you just can't take shortcuts with quality food and survive unless you do something with like with a chain where you have logistics systems and you have a brand and stuff like that. But like for independent restaurants, like the quality of the food is the thing that keeps people coming back. Hmm. And so taking a step back, taking a look at the book here, what do you think uh, of that leg of the journey? What What's the big leadership lesson for those folks checking it out? Well, there's some specific lessons I have, and then there's sort of a, a larger meta lesson. And the you know some of the specific lessons I learned as I'm, I didn't know a balance sheet had to balance when I started my company. Like I didn't get the business license until like two or three years in. I was making it up as I went along, selling restaurants you know, by day, programming at night. And I learned a, there's a bunch of rapid fire lessons, one of which I just said, which is repeat customers are far more better then new new customers are very expensive to get. Repeat customers are much less expensive if your product is good. Yeah. So I learned that. I learned how to do sales, and you know that it has to do with creating a, a connection with people and listening first instead of just pitching them. And there's a few others, but like sort of the bigger lesson is my co-founder, you know, one of my co-founders at Fixer, Josh. He has this phrase he says, which is called "Be a tourist." When you go to a new town, mm. like pull out the map. And be the tourist and ask questions. Don't try to look like you know what you're doing. Because if, you, if you're just willing to look like you need to learn, people want to help you and people want to give you advice. And they want to walk up to you and say, hey, can I, can I help you find the best restaurant in town or the best whatever, you know, the best like beach for your kids or whatever. And, mm. and so this idea of like always ask questions, even if you look like an idiot. I've been in so many meetings where somebody is like pitching me something as an expert. I'm like, wait. What did those words mean? Like, well, I don't understand. Like, help me understand. And and eventually you just learn so much, you end up becoming an expert in a lot of different fields. And so that that sort of learning approach, the, the beginner's mind approach was ultimately the thing that helped me keep leveling up as the business got harder and harder to run. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's, it's also be not being afraid to look like that, look like a learner. Even yeah. when you, you know, people are looking at you as the senior leader in the room and the expectation we feel out of time is we, we got to be the expert here. We got to have all the answers, but when you engage someone and have them explain something to you, it builds rapport in a relationship on a completely different level. They, if they almost so oftentimes feel a part of your success. That's right. I'm, I'm thinking like, like a restaurant who has good food, like the service isn't too good yet. And you're having to wait a long time for the food because they haven't figured out the service and you just want to give them, you just sometimes if the food's really good, you just want to help them. You want to be patient with them. You want to give them a good review, even though they didn't nail every part of it because the heart and soul is, is there to do the, a good job. But the restaurants or any business, the, the but for that, just to continue that example, you know, the restaurants that are trying to figure out how to make the service, they'll figure it out. The ones who are trying and putting the effort in to learn, they do figure yeah. it out. And that's true with every business. And there's another sort of corollary to this idea, which is if you're always willing to ask questions, everyone you work with, from vendors to people you're selling to employees to investors, if you're always willing to ask questions, they have to be prepared as well. <laughs> because if you're going to dig in on everything because you're curious, then people can't just sort of blindside you, you know, just sort of snow over things with big words, mm. right? If you're always investigating, 
you can't, there's nowhere to hide, right? So everybody has to be learning. You end up, you end up surrounding yourself with other people who are learners as well, because they also thrive in that environment. Great learners attract other learners. And man, that's a great kind of leadership team to have. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. And so you, know, you you go along in your journey and you and you close it out. You go to IPO. You, you take your bike ride across the country. You get stung by bees. Um, yeah. What did you take away from riding across? America. Well, I wrote a whole book about it, so it's going to be hard to ca- encapsulate in a single question. In but, one sentence. You know, I think one of the things that really struck me as I was writing across, this is not a business lesson. This is just a life thing that I learned. So, you know, I would go into a, ta- a small town in Kansas or in Missouri or, or wherever, and the people were unfailingly kind and generous and lovely. And, you know, if you looked at, if you just look at the news, you wouldn't assume that's true. But if the news actually represented what's really happening in small town America, it's like it'd be mm. out of a 30 minute show, it'd be 29 minutes and 58 seconds of people being wonderful to each other and two seconds of people being horrible. But one of the things that was also interesting is when I would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to this, I'm, you know, I'm, he- I'm headed west. And they'd be like, well, that people in the town next to ever, they're OK. The next town, they're OK. But the town after that, they're weirdos. And there was this thing. And then we'd get there. And they'd be wonderful people, right? And I'd get there and they'd be wonderful people. And they and they talk about the town that's the next two down or the, the two that I... And so there was just this thing that happened mm-hmm. where just people being from another place, just being a little bit distant, there was an assumption that they would be somehow different or unkind or or not as hospitable. And it turned out to never be true. It turned out that in every town, people were hospitable and kind and wonderful. And so it just sort of taught me something about how um, we can have a pretty negative perspective about others, mm. you know, the uh, the people who don't look like us or don't don't live in the same town or or have slightly different lives. But actually, when you get to meet them, unfailingly, in every case, they were kind, wonderful people and and welcoming. And I know I had some privilege going into these towns. I'm a, I'm a white guy. Like, I understand that um, I do look like a lot of the people that I was going into some of those towns. I'm not sure everybody would have experienced mm-hmm. the same hospitality I did, mm-hmm. but for the most part, we did myself and, and the other people that I ended up riding with. And so it, it was just wonderful to just experience all of that kindness. I could have had a home cooked meal probably every night if I had just asked, right? Like wow. it, and people offered, I, people cooked us, cooked me food. And it was, just, it was an amazing experience. That's powerful. It's once, one, even experiencing that once in your life can be powerful. But man, was that drilled home for you when you got to experience it time and time again. It reminds me of that quote that gets attributed to Abraham Lincoln as many quotes. I have no idea if it's true or not, but I do not like that person. I must get to know them better. Have you heard that quote? Yeah, yeah. Before? Was it Abraham Lincoln? I don't know. Could have been you. <laughs> I mean, it was it was humbling to, and and I came into the whole experience with my own sort of set of preconceptions about how people were going to be that um, mm-hmm. were blown away. I thought people were going to be pretty nice. Like I thought, I thought it would be pretty nice, but I didn't expect the 
complete outpouring of grace and kindness that I did that I received across the whole United States. There's a, you know, sometimes I, when I interview leaders, some of their advice is around assuming positive intent. Yeah. Assume, and they, and they're working a lot of times to instill that in a company, especially when they're coming in and they want to do like a transformation. So I would take that a step further and supercharge that. Okay. I would say live with intentional naivete. Even when you get wronged, assume the next time people are going to be wonderful. I've had employees in the past, you know, steal, or I've had to deal with fraud or whatever, like, you know, and I've had to release features for websites where one time, you know, we we got defrauded in this one situation, it kind of stunk. And the next time I'm like, well, let's not, let's not worry about where the fraud's going to come from. Let's release the feature and then we'll solve that problem when it first happens. We can't write software and release features with the parking brake on. Like we have to just do it. We have to do what's right for the for the 99% of our customers who will use this feature. And that sort of intentional naivete is um it's better than living with your guard up all the time. Like I don't know how you live like that. And for the most part people people don't take advantage of me or of of leaders. And so I, I that positive intent concept I totally agree with it. And I would take it even further and just expose yourself to risk knowing that sometimes it will not come out well, but on, on the balance and, you know, the end net net is that when you give people opportunities and you, and you, and you let them try things and, and you, uh, and you don't worry about if things have failed in the past, it comes out positively far more often than you might expect. And so I think that that in cultivating an intentional naivete is actually pretty important. Cultivating an, an intentional naivete. I have never heard that. But it's powerful. And I like that. For you, was that naivete something that's just inherent to how you showed up in the world? Or was it instilled? Or was there a moment for, for you that that was, uh, you know, it really kind of brought it out? I've had some really positive experiences where I, where I gave people chances and they really turned out well. And I've had really negative experience where I prejudged. And I missed an opportunity. And so I, I just evaluating that when I do the opposite, when I try to be very protective or when I try to be really conservative in the choices we make or in the innovation that we do in the companies that I've been involved with, you can really burn people by not trusting them, right? People don't like that. People like to have autonomy. They like to have responsibility. They like to be trusted to do the things like people thrive in that environment. And so I think what I what happened is I I observed I unfortunately got to observe the results of the opposite when I wasn't giving people chances and certain opportunities, and uh, I didn't want to keep doing that. And so um, it was a mis- I just learned from mistakes. It wasn't like it was I didn't show up in the world knowing this. So hopefully someone else can learn from my <laughs> I was mistakes. Or naive, and I yeah. figured it out at the age of two. <laughs> no, I, I like that. But it helps me under helps us understand, you know, your your process probably for a lot of your learning, and you know, CEOs, founders that write books, I think have a very powerful or develop a powerful uh, self reflection muscle along the way. I got a good chuckle out of your uh, a video or uh, I had watched where you said that writing a book was harder than launching a multi-million or creating a multi-million dollar business or multi-billion dollar Multi-billion is what I said. With yeah. a B, multi-billion yeah. dollar uh, B. I've done both. The book was harder. Oh, okay. The book was harder. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so 
but your book is a is a memoir, so it's it's grounded in a in self reflection. Yeah, right. You also mentioned that you're a fan of therapy, and that can be a self reflection, you know, mechanism. What is your go to self reflection uh, mechanism for your writing or for, or for you know this this whole idea uh, of naivete? I think it's important to um, be honest with yourself about results. You know, it's, it's what I'm doing working. Are the relationships that I have thriving? Am I treating people right? Um, am I being kind to myself? Is my business actually working? Is it is it actually achieving the goals that I set out? So I think it starts with this idea of being brutally honest when you're failing at things so that you can change something. If we just convince ourselves that something is working that's not, there's no opportunity to do better. And so it starts with this sort of... Um, just not sugarcoating the realities and for, for specifically you're saying for yourself, it's so easy to lie to ourselves as a leader about where we are personally where a company is even. I should also point out that it's not a good idea to lie to investors or employees or customers. Or, okay. There's a lot of people you shouldn't lie yeah. to, but yes, yourself, but like start, start with, with yourself. yourself. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, other people, it's not a good policy. Yeah. But if you if you're not being honest with yourself about how the results are going, um, it can be easy to to inadvertently shade the truth to other parties, right? To investors or customers or whatever. And so, but I'm not just saying like the the general idea of like be honest with yourself. Like, sure, that's true. But I'm talking about something more specific, which is mm -hmm. be honest with evaluating the results. I, I'm very much a believer in setting goals, lifetime goals, annual goals in different areas of my life. And then just evaluating whether or not I'm actually hitting them, right? And and I think that 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 is it actually working is a really important uh, muscle to work on. It's tough, and sometimes one of the things you have to say is it's not working. I'm not going to like beat myself up too much about it. Like tomorrow, I'm going to make a plan to make it work. I'm not going to like take it as a moral failing that this thing isn't working. So the more honest you are with yourself about whether the results are happening. Also, the more grace you have to give yourself about giving yourself an opportunity to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of just sort of taking a shame out of that exercise. Oof. That's a well-thought-out self-reflection exercise. Thanks. <laughs> the question is, is it working? Is it working, but don't make yourself feel like, you know, crap by shaming yourself through the results. Hey, we don't hit it. Be honest and move on and fix it versus kind of miring in it. It reminds me of another quote was Winston Churchill, something about uh, sometimes you must occasionally look at the results, no matter how beautiful the strategy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, pay attention in there. I oh, mean, man. you know, I started a handy person business. Fixer is a handy person business. Yeah, we'll about yep. And it's what it started as version one. We're on like version five. Right. And version one was it was a handy person service where if a toilet broke, we would show up and we would fix it. And we had a full time employee. We still have a full time employee workforce, not contractors, the full time employee workforce. Oh, OK, I didn't realize that. Yeah. We train oh, people okay. from scratch. The whole thesis of the business is that the supply of skilled workers is insufficient. And so we said, well, if we train them ourselves, then we can solve we can actually start to solve the consumer problems. So that was the thesis of the business. It worked well. And then a pandemic occurred. Right. And so we're, we have a business where we go into people's homes. And so, you know, March of 2020, 85% of our revenue just went away, just disappeared like in one week. 
And that's a pretty like horrible moment for a business, right? You've got, we've got, I don't know, at the time we had 65 employees. Like, I'm like, where are we going to get the money to pay these folks? I don't want to furlough anybody. And so we pivoted into a video console product and then we, and that, that worked okay, but not great. It had great press, but we just couldn't get, we didn't make a lot of revenue from customers. And then we pivoted into a general contract relationship so that we could send people onto work sites that weren't homes, you know, so we could go do work that we'd have to be worried about virus exposure. And then we pivoted back to the original business model. What a journey, man. And then the strategy at every time made sense, but the results were like, well, this ain't working. Well, this ain't working. Well, this ain't working. And then now, now we're on a model that works. Ultimately, we we ended up our say that was version four, version five was the thing that we do now is um we, we do annual maintenance plans for homes where we go, we show up every month and we do all of the maintenance associated with the home, both reactive and proactive, the things the customer wants, plus the stuff we know just has to get done at the home. And so that that product has been much more effective than the, the sort of ad hoc come fix my toilet. We still do that, but for the most part, most of our customer, most of our revenue, most of our hours, most of our jobs are for this um, home maintenance pl- plans that we do. But it took it took seven years to like end a pandemic to get to this point. And a lot of a lot of moments were like, well, boy, it was a beautiful strategy, but I guess we have to look at the results. <laughs> it ain't working. <laughs> yeah. It, well, what's working is your self-reflection at the results or your team's reflection and that being brutally honest. And it sounds like to me that 85% that went away, you were figuring out a way to help the business survive. And you picked up a lot in all those different iterations. And then you went back to the original business model and then put it on steroids with the the subscription model. Yeah. Which is so cool. And you're way more than just Chicago. Right. That's where it started, but you're in other metropolitan areas around the country. Now. Yeah. We're in Denver, Dallas, Phoenix, Seattle, and LA as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like a dream. If you get to, yeah, Charleston. I'm trying to do this thing a second time. We'll, we'll see how, <laughs> how it plays out. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh man, so cool. Now you, you talk about using business as a lever for social impact, which to me, sounds good. And I think a lot of businesses think, hey, this sounds good. We want to help use some of our proceeds uh, or, or our profit to, you know, for social good. And they kind of do it as a, as a hobby sort of yeah. thing, you know, for the business. But it sounds like you're taking a little bit different perspective on this. Yeah. I think um, if the social impact or the, or the societal benefit that your company is creating is a bolt on nice to have, it's, also the first thing to go when times get tough. So it doesn't work. And even philosophically, arguably, that those dollars should be returned back to investors so that they can do their own philanthropic exercises. And it's not the company's place to do it. There's there's an argument for me. I don't quite believe that, but there are people who believe that. Instead, what what I'm a proponent of is if you're going to do a start, so I I don't know how you do this at a 100-year-old company, but if you're going to create a startup, you're going to create something from scratch. Find a business model where the actual execution of bringing value to the customer in and of itself creates societal benefit. So by way of example, Fixer, there's no way for us to do the work with the existing workforce in the United States. There are not enough people to go and create a home maintenance plan where we go and do the work for, let's call it 18% of the the homes in urban areas in the United States, if that's our addressable market. So we have to 
create training programs and we have to create an entry path into the trade. Hmm. And then very quickly, the implication of that is that it has to be gender inclusive. Like you can't, it's not just for guys, right? If you're going to try and create an entry path into the trades and increase the number of trades people, it would be really stupid to implement a strategy of just talk to men. And so we've created this, this whole funnel that finds people who are working at Target or Whole Foods or something like that. And they want a career instead of a job. And then they switch over. We train them from scratch. And we do a lot of on-the-job training, a lot of like mm-hmm. in-the-home training. We partner people up in an apprenticeship model. And so the, the social impact that we're creating also gives us a huge competitive advantage from, from a business perspective. We have tradespeople. We have plenty of tradespeople in an environment where everybody says, I can't find people that work for me. We don't have that problem. We have plenty of tradespeople to do the work that we need to do. And so... Um, it's both a business advantage and a social impact. And so I think that that's what a real impact business is, is, where those two ideas can't be divorced. There are other examples of companies like this as well, but it's not a bolt-on thing. It's not a nice to have. Yeah, instilling it early on, making it part of the business model. Uh, when you founded Grubhub, you were obviously were not maybe in that stand, that point of view initially, but it was part because you were right? It was about independent restaurants initially. Is that correct from a societal standpoint? And, I, small and I, I think that that was, so helping independent restaurants, I think was also a huge competitive advantage because it took us a lot longer to get that 65,000 independent restaurant base than other competitors like Uber Eats and DoorDash that came along. They started with chains because it was easier, right? And so it was easier to get a thousand restaurants if you start with Pizza Hut, right? Yeah. And so we had a huge competitive advantage and our customers really had a lot of loyal the restaurants had a lot of loyalty to the to the service and so um i would argue that if the company had continued along that vein it would have stayed differentiated as opposed to nowadays most people think of i actually still think grubhub is a better service and has better customer service but like and i'm trying i'm honest with myself about that it's not just that i created that company uh <laughs> and so but i think that some of the differentiation has gone away as yeah. as the company has lost that mm-hmm. sort of lens and so, you know, it's one of the things that happens about being impact oriented, being being thoughtful about how you're creating value for your customers first, not for your shareholders first. Take care of the customers first, and that brings longevity to a business. And I think that's that ultimately is beneficial to investors. So I, I think that there's room for this in a lot of businesses. Thinking about, at the very least, it, it, not even necessarily thinking about societal benefit, thinking about customer benefit. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that you exclude every benefit but shareholders is anathema to building good products because you'll always take shortcuts. And so I think um, I just think thinking bigger than just the sort of really narrow lens of just shareholders um, ultimately creates better businesses, regardless of whether you take that all the way to where I have taken it with societal benefit with impact. Or if you just you're just trying to keep customers happy for a long time, like that's Regardless of what you think, if you think the stuff I'm doing is frou-frou, like whatever, this guy's crazy, like at the very least, taking care of customers is a thing most business people can agree is a valuable outcome. Yeah, that drives results at the end of the day because they're paying the bills. Right. And yeah, what a great place to focus. And when you can meld it with societal benefit, even it's just sort of a virtuous cycle from that standpoint. Now, starting to wind this up a little bit. Living intentionally through adventure. I don't know a lot about sailing, but you sure do. 
And I was like, yeah. man, this guy, he's like grub up, he's fixer, he's riding his bike across the country. And not only are you sailing all over the place, you've built a crew, and you apparently have a documentarian following you around on your so living tensely through adventure. I I consider the biking and the sailing falling in that category. What the leaders need to know about that. Yeah, the sailing thing, um, the adventure that I took. So the so the next book will probably have this adventure in it. The the uh, so I sailed a boat. I sailed I sailed a boat from France to the United States to Chicago, all the way to Chicago, uh, sailboat. And um, one of my friends who happens to be a videographer was on the trip, and so he did a documentary document uh, a uh, he did the video for that. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah, I mean, at, there's something about you know our scarcest resource. It's not dollars. And that's true for companies as well. It's, I'm not even sure that it's time, which is a pretty obvious thing to say. I think, I think our scarcest resource is attention. Like, where do we put our attention? And for companies, the reason why they have to stay focused is not because it is because of the dollars, it is because people's time, but actually, like, people can only be worried about so many things. So you want to keep the focus on this particular product with this particular customer set. And then in my life, it's also something very similar, like, mm. like, what am I going to put my attention towards? And so relationships are are the first thing for me, my wife and my daughter, and then my business is second. And then for leisure, I don't just like go to movies or whatever. <laughs> like, I have this like team thing that I do with sailing where like we go and race and we do all this stuff, but it's relationships and it's physical exercise. And it's sort of, it's sort of a lot of benefits all wrapped up in one. So that's why I picked it. It was a very intentional sort of choice. Plus I just, it's fun messing about on boats. Yeah, I love that. I love a lot about that. But one thing that really most resonates with me is people in life identifying their pastimes and hobbies and interests on finding intersections. And you just listed all three or four ways that sailing sort of meets your needs and brings into brings into your life the right people and adventures. And um, for me, I think about tennis because it's so it's physical. It, it takes my attention like and, and I and I enjoy deviating my attention from the work world onto the tennis court. I can't think about what's going on at work, even in my personal life when I'm focused on the tennis court. Um, and so I like the friendships with that. Um, I've, I've done a, a lot of training in improv and that and that terrifies me every time. But I like the interesting people I get to meet. It allows me to sort of hone my speaking craft a little bit. And most importantly, it improves my listening. Huh. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think finding those intentional places is a great lesson for every human being, not just leaders. I just recently heard about a study that like, of uh, you know, I, I'm a runner. I do a lot of running. I do a lot of cycling. And just recently uh, I heard about a study that said, the most longevity increasing sports that you can do are not running and cycling, but actually racket sports because they force you to have relationships. You can't do oh. them solo. You can't like, I can just go for a run by myself, but I have to find a friend to play tennis or racquetball. That's interesting. Um, and it makes and, a lot of sense. It's not just even the playing it's finding somebody. Yeah. And maintain that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's um there's an increasing body of evidence that for longevity, for for like as you get into middle age or later age, it's actually the social interact, challenging social interactions that really keep us sharp. And so um 
it's a strong uh, argument for doing racket sports. All right, y'all. Mike, we've got your, you're going to start your own pickleball league. And uh, I, I'm going to start slow. We'll see. Start we'll slow. See. Yeah. Well, now that you've cut down your pizza eating, you don't have to play quite as many sports or run quite as much, right? Because you're living healthier now. Yeah, but it's uh, I do just from a mental health perspective, not from a physical health perspective. I mean, it's a it's a good release valve to just go on autopilot for a little while and do sports and do physical exercise. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the greatest benefits to me, too. I feel rejuvenated after having even if I'm tired physically, I mentally feel refreshed and I'll get a burst of clarity and sort of peace for 24 hours after I get a tennis match. That's awesome. And then I'm looking for my next tennis match, calling people. Can you play? Can you play? Yeah. No matter where I'm traveling to. Well, Mike, to, um, what's your parting thought for our listeners today? You know, I would just say that intentionality is really important. You know, I, it, the idea of having a personal definition of success, the idea of writing it down, telling it to other people, making it explicit, understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish, mm-hmm. and then actually evaluating whether you're you're approaching it is critically important. And then there's a third piece, which is, if you're not approaching it, change something, either change the goal or change your activity. And Mm -hmm. without any sort of like moral judgment, if this isn't working, well, maybe I need a different goalpost issue for, or maybe I need different effort. But like the idea that you just feel bad that you didn't meet goals doesn't, it doesn't help. Right. So um, I think this idea of personally defining success and then evaluating is um, it makes for a very fulfilling life. Oh, so good. Mike, Thanks for coming on Lead the Team today, sir. Thanks for having me. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.